Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm James Allgood, one of today's co-hosts. I'm in product marketing for Ignite, a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, today's other co-host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a platform that provides access to worldwide life sciences expertise and is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. I'm very excited to welcome a former colleague, Jeffrey Von Malsen, founding CEO of Generate Biomedicines and general partner at Flagship Pioneering, and Michael Nally, CEO at Generate Biomedicines and CEO partner at Flagship Pioneering. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. Thanks, Rahul. Thank you, guys. Yeah. So, Mike, to start off, we'd love to learn a bit more about your background, the arc of your career, and how you got to where you are today. Thanks, Rahul. You know, for me, you know, I have a rather non-traditional background. I'm an economist by training, started off my career in investment banking, and shortly after starting my professional career, realized I was lacking the purpose in my work. And, you know, fortunately, during that time, I spent a lot of time working on the pharmaceutical industry um, and the biotech industry and clearly picked up a thirst for the science within the industry. I went back to business school and transitioned out and joined Merck 18 years ago and spent basically the first 18 years of my career in the pharma industry within Merck and basically traversed the entirety of the company, started off doing competitive intelligence, worked on the early launch of our diabetes product, Genuvia, worked in investor relations during the Vioxx trials, uh, spent time doing business development, worked on the Merck Shearing Plow merger, and then worked on integrating both Merck and Shearing Plow and setting up this combined strategy for the companies. You know, from there, I actually spent time in Europe. So I spent five years leading Merck's business in Sweden and then the UK, largely interested in those two markets, largely because of the underlying data-driven nature of healthcare decision-making within those markets and, and the real payer orientation for those markets. From there, I took on leadership of Merck's vaccines business for a couple of years before taking on my last role within Merck, which was as the chief marketing officer, which was really sitting between the research organization, the manufacturing organization, and the commercial organization developing product strategy. Around the turn of the year, I uh, was connected into the team at Flagship, you know, around the opportunity at Generate and truly saw it as a transformative opportunity. And we'll obviously spend some more time talking about the specifics of it. But, you know, throughout my career, I've been, you know, largely oriented around two fundamental challenges in life sciences. One is, you know, this continued decline in R&D productivity over the past couple of decades. And the second one is around, you know, the inequitable access to medicines. And based on everything I learned around Generate, I believe it's a fundamental platform that can address those two large concerns that have faced the industry for a long time. You know, it's great to be here and I look forward to a good conversation today. Excellent. Thanks, Mike. And Jeff, same question for you, please. How'd you get to where you are today? Awesome. Well, first of all, thanks for having us on. And you'll notice some very modest, slight distinctions between Mike's experience and mine and that they uh, seemingly have no overlap whatsoever, but I think we're both right-handed eat food. <laughs> so... <laughs> I, I'm an engineer originally by training. I did my undergraduate in chemical engineering. Looking back on that, I feel really lucky to have fallen in love with biology. It was initially one of these awkward romances where I interned in a biology lab three months in. I found that I was repeating an experiment over and over and over, sometimes using a dozen hours on a Saturday. 
And no matter what the result was, the recommendation was that I should repeat it. So after doing that a few dozen times in succession, I was like, I'm good. I'm done. And I was given the best guiding light I can point to in the past 20 years, which was my mentor at the time saying, look, everything becomes engineerable at some point and biology is next. And I think as is probably present in all of your podcasts, while that sounds simple, it is almost without bound in terms of its implications in that every time something we learn about in high school has become engineerable before, the whole world has changed. When chemistry did that, we had the industrial revolution and then some, when a subset of electrical systems did that, we've had, I don't know, a half dozen revolutions that changed the world. So when chunks of life undergo that same transition from trial and error to having a real mastery of the domain, it's going to be a really big deal. For two decades, I've felt like riding that wave in some form would be an extraordinary thing. I did my PhD between Harvard and MIT. Um, among many things, I fell in love with startups during that time. Just love the rate of learning, the sense of urgency, the fact that the whole thing might die or fall apart at any given moment was a feature as opposed to a flaw. And the extreme partnership with other people was amazing. Like, you know, there was just no other agenda at the table other than trying to create something great together. I started to imagine at the end of that, that if in fact biology makes one of these historical jumps of hard to imagine technological transformation, then it's almost certain that many of the most impactful life science companies have not been started yet. You know, for the same reasons that when the world went digital in other domains, many of the now tallest trees in the forest were just seedlings or, or new seeds at the time. It tends to be the case that among an ecosystem of startups will be you know, those new pioneers when in fact the rules start to meaningfully change in a given domain. I had a couple cups of coffee with Nubar and others at Flagship around that time, triggered initially by my coming in and presenting a company I was in the process of starting. Through those cups of coffee, they tempted me into a role where I'd be inventing stuff and starting companies internally. So for the past 10 years, I've been doing just that. And that's now almost the entirety of what we do at Flagship. So Flagship Pioneering structured as a venture capital firm, but our activities are frontier science and invention taking place across teams internally. Generates one of those offspring, you know, venturing forth to try to change the way we can think about treating and preventing disease. Others have included Moderna, Sauna, Series Therapeutics, and many others. And each of the companies I've been a co-founder of have had the good fortune of leading either R&D or the company at the early phases of, of its creation. And I'm an inventor of the founding technologies of each. Great. Thanks, Jeff. A follow-on question related to Flagship. And for those that are not familiar with the Flagship ecosystem, curious to hear both of your thoughts on you know, what you think makes Flagship so unique and so productive across the life sciences sector and beyond? Great question. I often get asked, well, wow, this seems really impressive. Why doesn't everybody do this when it comes to what, what Flagship is doing? I think uh, the results, I hope, have done some speaking for themselves. But if this were also easier than a venture model, it would be a much more sensible question in that the challenge that we face is with any given new idea that we're pursuing, the full spectrum of possibilities from success or failure on the table. And usually we're starting with nothing. 
the proverbial blank sheet of paper. Although that sounds like a disadvantage, in some ways, the defining advantage of startups in general is in fact facilitated by the virtue of having no preconditions, no bias, and you know, committing to discovering greatness within the infinite realm of things that you might work on. As Flagship has scaled up, in particular, it's created this really remarkable set of synergies that I think work well together. One is resources with which to be able to do very high-risk pioneering science. We just closed a new fund of $3.5 billion just last week that will exclusively go to funding new science inventions and companies that we're creating. The second is an incredible amount of company founding experience. And across the team, there's probably experience founding and leading a hundred different companies. So in doing so, there's a lot of unforced errors that can be taken off the table. The third is a professional team that's able to run and manage everything outside of the science. There's a great Edwin Land quote, who is the founder of Polaroid and longtime CEO, which is something to the effect of, if you want to be extraordinary in life in any one domain, you need to be completely ordinary in every other domain. As many people in my life that can account for the ordinary nature of most of my life, whether or not any of it's extraordinary, I don't know. But in pursuit of extraordinary science, the scientific team is alleviated of the responsibility of becoming masters of intellectual property, regulatory affairs, you know, the considerations that go into your realm rule of what are the optimal indications that a given technology should go after, et cetera. So there are structured teams of professionals that can really endow every new startup with a superpower of world-class finance, world-class talent, world-class HR, et cetera, so as to facilitate team of originators and scientists doing their thing. And I think collectively that buys time and in a sense, permission to try to dream big. This is a time in biology where that is appropriate, probably necessary, and that the enduring companies are likely to all have been based on doing that. And furthermore, the shortest or the scarcest resource that all of us have is just our time. I think there's a really healthy kind of one-upsmanship inside a flagship, seeking to work on things that will 40 years from now have looked like a great use of our time, where you know we're intensely proud of the results of the better future that we hope that creates. If I could add a couple of things, I, I think you know one of the things that is distinguished flagship from my point of view, you know, and it was immediately apparent is you know most organizations actually orient toward incremental innovation, and everything about flagship is oriented toward, you know, truly remarkable and breakthrough innovation. And, you know, I think, you know, that takes a certain courage that isn't always seen in many organizations. There's a safety and a comfort, you know, working on the margins. Um, when you go off to the white space, it can be a very daunting challenge. And I think, you know, the, the team and the people that have been naturally oriented toward flagship are comfortable you know, in that white space. And I think that's a huge advantage because there just are fewer people operating in that domain. I think the other things that I think are really, really critical, you know, the, the people, you know, within the ecosystem are extraordinary. Some of the best minds I've seen across disciplines. And I think, you know, if you're going to work on those extraordinary problems, you really need extraordinary people, the brightest people in these different disciplines and bringing together 
many diverse disciplines to crack many of these problems. And I think that's something that, you know, has been apparent across the flagship ecosystem. And certainly I've seen firsthand within Generate. And so I think those dynamics certainly lend themselves well to the extraordinary outcomes that Jeff has cited earlier. Yeah, there's something real exciting about these jumps in technology that you both are talking about. And there's a lot of expectations for what machine learning can do for the broader world, especially in biotech. What's so exciting about the intersection of machine learning and biotechnology to you? Well, I'll say a couple of things and then hand it to Mike. We've had many conversations about this over the last several months. If you zoom all the way out to biology in a historical arc of technology revolutions, it's actually easy to forget how little we know about how biology really works because the majesty of biology is staring at us all the time. And in contrast, chemical engineering, electrical engineering actually required those engineering fundamentals to create steam engine, to create modern engines, airplanes, computers, et cetera. So to have majestic things staring at us, we needed an understanding. The biology, of course, has happened in the reverse. And unfortunately, very little biology works in ways that are easy for us to use human language to communicate with each other, that are easy to draw on a chalkboard or on a whiteboard. And in fact, what we are frequently doing is simplifying our models of how biology works so that implicitly they can be communicated through a two-dimensional textbook or you know, through conversations with one another. Well, biology doesn't really care about textbooks and what fits into a conversation. And in a sense, it's the original information technology. The code that drives life as we know it is the four bases of DNA. And what makes machine learning and computational tools both necessary but extraordinary in biology in particular is that it allows patterns to be accessed and learned from at a scale that vastly surpasses what any of our brains are capable of doing. And as we'll talk about in Generate, the implications of that are likely to touch every aspect of medicine and life sciences. Virtually every life science industry in 2050, as, as you guys have projected, is going to be radically changed based on biology becoming digital with tools embedded in what we call a variety of different terms, computational terms, AI, et cetera. And I think when you think about the problem that you know Jeff and the team tried to solve within Generate, it was ideally suited for an ML-based approach. You know, historically, you know, physicists have been trying to create new and better approaches, building up from an atomistic perspective to try and develop proteins. And, you know, historically, those approaches have failed, you know, time after time, you know, oftentimes lacking robustness, making, you know, objects that are brittle. The, I think, fundamental understanding of, you know, trying to discern the protein alphabet, you know, the 20 different amino acid sequences that make up a protein, you know, the average protein being a hundred amino acids you can see the totality of protein space is enormous. And that has been, you know, something that has eluded the human mind, you know, and without different techniques, it would have been really hard to crack a problem like that. And so applying, you know, machine learning, you know, computational techniques to a problem of that magnitude um, ultimately, you know, gives us insights that were probably unthinkable just a decade ago. That's really interesting. I'm curious whether COVID has introduced any constraints or opportunities 
for your technology? If you think about the underlying technology of Generate, what, what Generate really does is it's been able to understand the generalizable principles of proteins. And by understanding it, allows us to program medicines across the entire biotherapeutic realm in in silico modeling. And so you're able to do that really, really quickly. And you're able to do it at a scale that very few organizations could potentially match. And so when we think about the challenges that COVID has presented, clearly, you know, one of the things that has come to the fore is the need for better interventions faster to fight emerging infectious disease threats. Um, we saw you know, tremendous success with the mRNA vaccines and the speed at which they were able to be developed, but therapeutics lagged a bit. And so we believe in the future, having a capability like Generate, you know, the in silico capability, will be able to develop novel therapeutics a couple of years faster than traditional techniques, which will have a meaningful impact in this world. From a productivity perspective, um, one of the things that's great about the Generate approach is the computational work can be done anywhere. Clearly, we're still relying on the wet lab techniques, but we're continuing to automate and drive toward higher throughput techniques to really you know, accelerate the breadth of what we can do. And so you know, COVID has forced us to innovate, but I think the technologies and the techniques that Generate is working on should allow us to produce medicines at a pace that was really unthinkable just a couple of years ago. Thanks, Mike. Jeff, now that you've set the stage regarding what's exciting about the potential of the intersection of ML and biotech, would love to hear more about the founding story behind Generate and how you landed on the idea that you all are now pursuing. Sure. Generate comes out of an exploration process, which is effectively the universal origin of companies that come out of flagship. Like you start with a hunch, wander around with that hunch. <laughs> that might sound you know, slow or lazy, but in fact, when you free yourself of the constraints of any other idea or the necessity to go and test it right away in the lab, you can advance that intellectually at a remarkable pace. I'll give you a sense of that founding hunch and, you know, and then where we've been able to take it. In a sense, the foundations of what we're doing at Generate are, we think, evidence of biology making a jump in technological capability in that the question that we became fascinated by is a pretty simple one, or it would seem to be. So, okay, DNA is the code of life, and proteins are the most amazing machines, sensors, devices in our world. They also happen to be the smallest in many cases. So how does the code of DNA dictate the function of those amazing technologies? It would seem like a pretty useful thing to know, and I'll just give a parenthetical that to my family members, protein sounds boring because they often think soy, bacon. But in fact, not only are those such amazing technologies so as to you know, have the gold medal in many of those categories, they also all start life as a noodle. So a chain of amino acids is built based on a code of RNA derived from the code of DNA. So if we could figure out how those noodles become those technologies, it'd be the equivalent of if your car, your house, your cell phone, your computer, your coffee maker, all arrived at your house as a noodle and then folded themselves into those technologies, except you know, on a little miniature scale. So we, we set out to see whether or not modern approaches might allow us to be able to crack open some of those principles that dictate the flow of information from DNA to protein function. And given the implications of figuring that out, people have spent 40 plus years 
trying to crack this open with a variety of approaches, most of them reliant upon physics. So effectively, how does a protein noodle with all those amino acid side chains interact with salt and water molecules around it, interact with one another so as to fold and function? That will inevitably be successful, but it still faces a number of challenges. And so rather than pile on to the history of innovation there, we thought it wise to see whether other approaches might be able to get there faster. The world of generative algorithms, machine learning is the hypothesis that resonated most strongly with us. And for those that aren't steeped in this realm, it probably is self-evident that not only are machines now the best players of every human invented game, they are also becoming better than humans in many early demonstrations that predict applicability in medicine and other realms of technology. The best analogy for the approach that we've taken to generate might be a great New York Times article from about a year ago, where they ran through a video of human faces morphing into one another. Not a single one of those people have ever existed or statistically will ever exist. They were all generated via algorithms with sufficient acuity that they're indistinguishable to us from pictures of people walking around. Those algorithms learn nothing explicit about the physics of what it means to be a human face, human hair, et cetera. But by training on tens of thousands of examples, mastered the answer of what it means to be a person's face so as to create uncountable versions of novel ones. So we started to imagine that maybe embedded in the DNA code of every protein in every genome across every branch of the tree of life and embedded in the three-dimensional structure of every protein whose structure had been resolved or every protein-protein interaction that had been resolved might be generalizable rules of what it means to be a protein and what it means to be able to embody the single most valuable function for therapeutic purposes, which is a protein sticking to a desired target and not sticking to other stuff. To us, the progress we've been able to make across those lines has been really remarkable. Mike, I'll hand it to you if you want to describe some of the things that we've been able to do over the past few years and what drew you to generate. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think the first time I heard, you know, Jeff give that kind of overview, I kind of, you know, thought it was almost science fiction. And, you know, you really, you know, wanted to try and, you know, understand, you know, now what is the real application of that? And, you know, what's become readily apparent over the last few months is, you know, understanding these principles of proteins, it allows you to open up the totality of protein space. And as, you know, one of our board members said to me, as I was considering joining, you know, today, you know, nature has roughly sampled about 160 to 200,000 proteins that are captured today in, in the protein data bank. When you actually think about the totality of protein space, that's one drop of water in all the earth's oceans. And this technology that Jeff just described now gives you an ability to really experiment in that broader pool. And so one of the questions the team raised in the fall was, let's take the top 50 therapeutic proteins. You know, now that we have opened up the totality of protein space, can we generate novel sequences that bind to that desired epitope in that desired positional pose? And for all 50, the team was able to do that in a period of under two months. And when you think about, you know, that sort of productivity, that's a technique that then can really change the underlying dynamics of research and development. The speed at which it was able to be done, the breadth at which it was able to be done. Now, you know, that was for areas where there was a known target and a known binding antibody to that target.
But the real goal now is to sit there and say, for any emerging target, can you have a de novo binder to it almost instantaneously computationally? And the progress we're seeing on that side, as Jeff noted, is really, really encouraging. You know, we're currently having to do some pre and post processing, but we believe that in the not too distant future, for those emerging targets, you can have antibodies that are highly specific to those targets. And within that, the other benefit of doing this all computationally is an ability to co-optimize these antibodies in the initial design across a wide array of parameters. So co-optimizing for half-life, thinking about immunogenicity in a fundamentally different way. While those can be done in those initial generation runs, it can also be applied to historical contexts where we've come into cases where anti-drug antibodies have made the tolerability of certain protein-based therapeutics less than desirable. And you know what we've seen now is through these computational approaches, an ability to recode and resurface proteins in a way that allow them to be stealth to the immune system. And so you know, we've been really encouraged by the early data. One of the things that you know, we've stayed really focused on, it's not just the novelty of these approaches, but also driving greater diversity across the variant sets that we produce. And so we're seeing real good progress there. We're going well beyond what would be possible within traditional error-prone PCR-based approaches. And I think that's what's really exciting is it opens up a wide array of applications across you know, multiple modalities. And one of the things we haven't touched on is you know, while antibodies is an area that, that is pretty well trodden, this technology works across all protein-based therapeutics. So enzymes, peptides, you can see applications in cell and gene therapy in the mirror protein world. All of those opportunities, when you really step back, 70% of the therapeutic market today are protein-based therapies. And I think that's only going to continue to increase as time goes on. And so the potential here is vast. And again, I think it goes back to solving some of those fundamental questions that we talked about at the start. You know, if this industry can solve and drive greater productivity and research, we can ultimately change the economic model to make sure that more people around the world benefit from those innovations. And I think, you know, what we're really trying to do is translate the great science and technical approach that Jeff outlined to have a massive impact on humanity. Mike, Jeff does have a habit of painting a very compelling picture of what's possible. I've been on the other side of that, so I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of Generate and the potential at Generate, we'd love to hear what's on the roadmap over the next couple of years and, and beyond. Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing we've been trying to discern is given the, the broad applicability of the platform, that you can basically point it at any of these protein areas and you can drive innovation. You know, how do you do that in a way that you can you know, tangibly execute? And I think one of the things that we found that's really unique about the Generate opportunity is there's this beautiful intersection of low-risk biology and low-modality risk. So you know, antibodies is a well-trodden path from a regulatory perspective. And you know, there are a number of antibodies that have proof of concept. And given the speed advantages within Generate, that gives us a really great opportunity to bring in competitive molecules really, really quickly. But ultimately, over time, we think that will transition more toward novel biology and across novel, you know, a, a host of these other modalities. And so you know, as we look at the organization, given the promise of the early data, we recognize we have to scale this organization quickly because you know, that speed advantage is something you want to take, take advantage of. And it is you know, time sensitive. The longer we wait, the more value erodes and the you know, fewer patients benefit from these sort of approaches. And so 
you know, we're working hard right now to rapidly scale up the organization. You know, right now we recognize that, you know, in the short term, we will be able to produce far more than we can actually prosecute ourselves. So partnerships will be a key point to the model. Um, and we've seen, you know, a huge amount of interest from people that are focused in the protein-based space, you know, given the technological advantages that Generate can convey. So from my tech background, I've heard the phrase, software is eating the world for a while. But in looking at your company and the future of the industry as a whole, are we to the point yet where software is curing the world? And how is this relatively new approach to biotech going to affect the future of treatments? Well, I can start there. You know, I think one of the amazing things about Generate and one of the things that I've studied throughout my time in the industry has been historically drug discovery is an artisanal craft and it actually is hindered by scale. And so if you think about, you know, productivity across R&D organizations, it's a downward correlation as you get bigger. With Generate, one of the amazing things that we've seen early on is because of the computational-based approach, we learn from every protein we generate. The you know, organization was set up with an informatics layer that measures things that most organizations don't and feeds every piece of data back into that underlying algorithm. It's a common platform across modalities. And so the more we do, the better we get at it. And I think that's one of the really exciting pieces for me is that you, know, you, you introduce the possibility, and this has to be borne out, so it's still early days, but you have a potential for economies of scale and drug discovery in a way that we have never seen before in this industry. And I think that's one of the really exciting things for me that you know, this is an approach that could really change the dynamics of how drugs are discovered. And if we continue to get better, we'll be able to tackle greater hills in the days, weeks, and months ahead. Great. Thanks, Mike. And Jeff, over to you. Would love to hear your perspective on predictions you have for the life sciences sector and perhaps some of the challenges that we should be aware of. Well, I'll, I'll marry it with the last question in that, uh, James, you point out that biotech does need a catchy version of software is eating the world, but you know, with what we hope are going to be implications that change the way we treat disease, prevent disease from ever happening, and other positive things spanning every life science industry. In general, it's hard to predict the future. If anything, the last two years has shaken that into us with a you know, stark reminder of all the unpredictability facing us. But when you zoom out a bit, you know, some things are inevitable. And I think biology and biotech is, is a field that is rich with examples. Among them that are near and dear to us to generate is that if you can transition a game of chance into one which has a deterministic outcome, and if you can utilize fundamental principles and a mastery of a given realm of biology with incredible extensibility behind it, you get to change the probability of success and also the probability of creating something really great at the level of a company. The essence of Generate's ability to learn from every single data point, as Mike described, is the possibility that the kind of arc that Moore's Law has been on that has radically changed, you know, what you know, our access to information and technology across other aspects of our lives is going to be omnipresent. And the rate of change that we experience within medicine and life sciences 
mean, as one early example of that, had we built Generate 10 years ago, just our first models using supercomputers 10 years ago would have taken 100 years to train at that time. So that's the best why now I've ever had for an area of technology and starting a company. And you know, if we're able to broadly across medicine biology, innovate in a way that keeps up with the rate of expansion of computational capabilities, things have the potential to move really quickly. It is going to change many aspects that are fundamental to the way we experience medicine today. The quantified self playing into better prognostic and diagnostic insight than the very best physician, you know, algorithms that are better at examining pictures and CT scans than any human. And, you know, and more information being accessible about our health status with a drop of blood, you know, than with a day in the hospital, we're going to see some really remarkable changes afoot. So broadly in biology, this is an amazing time to be in the field. It's truly a spectacular time to be an entrepreneur. I don't know if there's ever been a better time period to be an entrepreneur than now, given how much change is afoot in the world and the number of people that, you know, one's ideas have the potential to be able to influence. But particularly in biology, we're starting to enter a realm where a lot of the really hard foundational work from almost 70 years ago, us getting a glimpse of the three-dimensional structure of DNA for the first time to the foundations of this industry being laid over the past 30 years, to the kind of information molecules and genetic RNA and protein therapeutics ahead of us. It's going to be a really, really fun journey ahead. Yeah, I totally agree, Jeff. It certainly feels like we're in the golden age of biotech right now. On that note, for our younger listeners, as well as aspiring entrepreneurs, and this question is for both of you, if you were to look back on the early part of your career, What's one piece of advice that you wish you could provide your younger self? You know, it always orients to me around dreaming big, you know, especially at a more junior level within organizations, you're oftentimes told what you can't do. And that limiting behavior sometimes I think compresses the best ideas within uh, an organization. I think, you know, finding places that really embrace that creativity, that really truly believe in empowerment are the best places to work. And I think, you know, for me, finding those sort of environments and, and believing in yourself and believing in your ideas and pursuing them fully is something that this industry needs desperately. I'll riff on that in that when I look back on the way I thought about science technology 20 years ago, I think I was either of the perspective that surely someone else has thought about this before and therefore dejected or with any sign of novelty, my idea, almost in a bipolar sense, sure that it was completely revolutionary and new to humanity. And I think what, what I'd love to remind myself of or, or share is that even today, let alone then, the, the vast majority of biotechnology has not been created. And the vast majority of insights, opportunities, and impact is, is ahead of us. If you can find a domain where the rules are going to change as fundamentally as biology, one should play the long game, sort of remain patient, find an environment like Mike described, and then focus on aggressively acquiring the skills, experiences, and you know, taking shots at things that you're passionate about and you really believe in. It's remarkable how unexpected the dividends from those adventures can be. Excellent. Well, Jeff and Mike, it was great to have you both on today and learning about the exciting work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Generate Biomedicines. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. 
Thanks so much, Rahul. Thanks, James. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.